Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So can I share a story of something I saw earlier? I happen to be downtown Indianapolis today. I'm not always downtown in in, in the main studio. I, I I like working from home. It, it makes me happy. And uh, uh, for, for that COVID, thank you. Wow. I'm going to get emails. Email Ari at TonyCats.com. That's what you do right there. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What's going on, guys? Good to be with you. There are six police cars on what's called Monument Circle, right? The heart of downtown Indianapolis. Six police cars. Something must be going on. I walk around. Because you can walk around the circle. There's there's a coffee shop. There's a sandwich place. There's a, a, a little candy store called Rocket Fizz. There's the, the, the soup place. And then there's Giorgio's Pizza. And I, I'm walking in that direction. And... Uh, there is a woman screaming her head off. Now, just to give you a visual, she's a black woman. She is getting handcuffed. There are six police officers. Five of them men, one of them women, one of the men is black. She is screaming her head off. Get your hands off me. You can't do this to me. Get your hands off me. These are, these these men, they're some big guys. I think they were recruited for a specific reason. Some big dudes. I don't know why she got arrested. I, I, I don't have that part of the story in any way, shape, or form. What I have is that this woman has clearly been arrested. She's cuffed. And now they want to walk her to the car. So they're at what I guess it could be her car or what a car, I should say. The police car is 20 feet behind. She won't move. She is resisting. So one of the officers has to lift her arm up in a what I would consider to be an uncomfortable type of way to get her to move. Two other cops are there. This female cop is watching everything. She is screaming, get off me. She's screaming, how dare you? She's screaming, I'm not going. I'm there. I'm looking to get a salad. (laughs) Right? That's all I'm trying to do. Can I get myself something with some chicken in it? That's all I'm looking for. But I'm watching this happening, and I'm saying to myself, you know, This is the kind of thing that someone takes video of and screams police brutality. Literally said that to myself. As I finish that thought, I hear, what are you doing to that woman? And I look over to my left and there is a woman, phone out, videotaping the whole thing. There are six police officers. One of them is a woman. One of the five men is black. They get her to the, the 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 police car to put her in. She won't go in. She is resisting. She is fighting. She is stiffening up her muscles. She won't do it. The police, not wanting to use the force, I'm watching it happen with my own eyes, are moving her, pushing her, trying to get her into the car. They sit her down in the car. Oh, no, she stands right back up. 
They eventually get her in to the back of the police car, shut the door. She's screaming her head off. I assume it was, uh, this hurts, this is wrong, how dare you, all of those kinds of things. It was an interesting thing to watch because I've never actually watched it before. With my own two eyes, never watched it before. And I started with, I cannot tell you the reason for the arrest. I can tell you that everything that happened from the cuffing to her getting into the car was as genteel as one could expect in that moment from someone who is clearly engaged in resistance. Now, I didn't hear screams of you're all racists. I didn't I didn't hear uh, screams of, of this, that, or the other. I just heard no, and you can't do this, and all the, the usual suspect kind of things. But I thought about that other woman who was videotaping it. And when I see that video somewhere, look at what Indianapolis police officers are doing to a black woman. That's how that video is going to get phrased, right? That's how that video is going to get put out there without anybody asking, well, how we got here. And then because of a political nature, we're only going to look at, oh my gosh, how dare they, as opposed to, wait a second, is anybody watching how they're doing this? How they're handling themselves? How many people, clearly this has been a practiced moment, trying to de-escalate, but doing their job. And you came to the realization that there is a segment of the population that would simply rather that the cops didn't. There was a police officer who was murdered in Indianapolis. I think when I first got here, forgive me for not being able to remember his name. Ah, I feel terrible about that. And for people in India, I'm not talking about Brianna Leith. I'm talking about 2014, 2015. And what had happened was, was that... uh, he and, and and I think it was a partner had gotten out of the the, the, the squad car to deal with a, a situation, and that's when shots were fired. Perry Wren. Perry Wren. Thank you, producer Ari. I be, I believe that's that's what that's who it was. And the argument. Twenty fourteen, shot and killed in the line of, of duty. By Major Davis, who fired three rifle rounds at him. And so as, as, I, as I remember the story, he'd gotten out of the car to, to, to deal with what the situation was. Forgive me for not remembering the situation. But I clearly remember that the argument in response was, why did he get out of the car? And I said to myself, why did the police officer get out of the car? That's the whole job. You know what they call a police officer who doesn't get out of the car? A security guard at Parkland. Jesus, Tony. <laughs> That's dark. Whatever they call those resource officer at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, that's a cop who doesn't get out of the car. You have a shooter in the school and you don't go in. You hide behind garbage cans and wait and hope and figure, well, eh, at least it's the kids going and not me. Am I right or am I right, honey, while we're on vacation? Oh, oh, those people should go to hell in a handbasket. 
why did he get out of the car was at the time so this was this was July of 2014 which means in, in my career in Indianapolis I'd been on the air for the grand total of a week that was seven days I was on the air here in Indianapolis. But that Jared Fogle, I don't know if it was my first week. The subway, it's Jared Fogle, the subway guy, the 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 child molestation. That was the first story. I was like, okay, I can't do this. I I oh, I could not I couldn't report on the story. I don't even know how the news guys did it. Didn't you shouldn't have gotten out of the car. And I remember at the time saying, that is quite literally the craziest thing I have ever heard in my entire life. I have never heard anything more radical. Oh, was I about to be surprised. Because I have got nothing but the radical for you coming up. It's kind of fascinating. When I say kind of fascinating, it is magnificently horrifying. The depths to which we have sunk in what we find shocking or surprising. The depravity in which our fellow man engages society maybe an extent uh, to which we deal in that society i never argue that there aren't things we can't look at ourselves but if you are someone who believes that the problem with the police today is they get out of the car then you're saying you don't want police and you realize that at that moment in 2014, there were already people saying defund the police. This wasn't something that came out of George Floyd. This is something that has been around. Nothing that we see on the political side is actually new. I've talked about uh, Barack Obama talking about the 99% and the 1%. How is that different from Karl Marx talking about the proletariat and the bourgeoisie? It is not different. It is the same exact conversation, just in a different wrapper. Get, don't get out of the car. What is the difference between that and defund the police? What's the difference? And I'm here to tell you there is no difference. It's just today's society is far more brazen. When we take a look at Justice Samuel Alito and this draft decision that got leaked about Roe v. Wade, listen to the people who have come out so clearly to say abortion, super awesome, not safe, legal, and rare, which they now want to call safe, legal, and accessible. They say super awesome. They cheer it. They adore it. I'm going to prove it to you. Oh, I got a, I got a threefer on, on abortion, adoption, and bigotry. It's going to blow your mind. I share with you a story from 2014 based on what I just saw a couple hours ago. And I know that the story based on a couple hours ago this woman being arrested and put into a police vehicle is going to somehow be called uh, racism and bigotry. The black officer, oh, he's getting called an Uncle Tom. Remember, when you put on the uniform, you're one of them. One, one, one of whom? 
There was a woman there. Ah, uniform doesn't matter. Thus, the dehumanizing uh, will continue. Twenty fourteen, they were saying, "Why did he get out of the car?" In twenty twenty two, it's defund the police. And they said it then, and people said, what the heck is wrong with you? They say it today with pride, and they say it in megaphones and in microphones and on MSNBC. They say it any chance they get, anytime they can, anywhere they are. And you know what some people in the crowd do? They said abortion had to be safe, legal, and rare. And then abortion is, is, is a woman's right. And abortion is reproductive right. And then they got into singing your abortion and cheering your abortion. Then they got into the idea that men can have an abortion. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now we have clearly gone nuts. And if you say that they've gone nuts, they call you a bigot while they cheer something that is clearly killing I'm pointing out that what we see today isn't new. And it's time to start recognizing that. And it's time to start speaking very aggressively about these things that we have allowed to fester for decades. Parents realize this when we're talking about the schools and what has happened with education. Well, now you realize it culturally as well. And what we have done as rational people is we've just looked at them and said, they're schmucks and we moved on with our day because we made an assumption. We made an assumption that they're schmucks and that people are thinking in a logical, reasonable, rational kind of way. And this isn't the way the world thinks or Americans think, uh, you know, in total or at large and, and we're good. And then you know what we found out? These people have been so in the education system for so long that they got a lot of people thinking this kind of madness. And so I'm watching this with these police officers today. And it reminded me that we got to do a lot better job of speaking out and simply saying no. That when parents stand up for their kids and against these radicalized school boards... They're 100% right, and if the Justice Department wants to call parents domestic terrorists, tell Merrick Garland to kiss my ass. Your name calling doesn't bother me. When one day you realize I'm not on the air for three days in a row and nobody knows where to find me, you'll know it was Merrick Garland. I mean, that's, that's, that's the correct answer, isn't it? Parents fighting back in schools is only the start of the cultural fight that is necessary. I have argued here that when people scream, oh, you're just interested in the culture wars, you're just starting culture war. Yeah, and I intend to win it. Well, there has to be a question about what is it that we're actually fighting? Exactly what is it that you know about the enemy? You know, Sun Tzu was right. You have to know your enemy. So let us discuss what it is we actually know about the enemy what it is that we actually plan on doing. Can we recognize the enemy by name? Can we recognize what the enemy is doing? And is it right to even call them an enemy? Well, if you're somebody who believes that the police officer shouldn't get out of the car and someone who believes in defunding uh, the, the police, enemy isn't a bad term. Maybe there's a better one. And if you believe that a white 
couple adopting a black baby is so terrible that abortion would be a better choice. Aren't you the enemy? Who said that? Where is that conversation coming from? I'll bring that to you coming up. Keep it right here. This is Tony Katz today. Just in case you didn't have enough to worry about, monkeypox. What's going on? Holy crap! I am freaking out. And so you should, Peter. Monkeypox. This is a thing first discovered in monkeys. I think it was in the. 1970s in Congo, or though the first no, it was earlier than that. The first case of of humans having monkeypox was in in the 1970s. Um, sometimes can be cu- confused with with an STD, like syphilis or, or herpes. It's it's pretty ugly stuff, and there have now been cases in the United States. Monkeypox confirmed in U.S. this year in a man who had traveled to Canada. Which is why I don't go to Canada. That's the reason? Well, you, you never see me get uh, monkeypox, right? I guess I can't argue with that. So that's that's good logic. I don't go to Canada. I don't get monkeypox. That's you know? like saying, you know, I've never been attacked by a tiger. That's why I don't go to Canada. Yeah. Full of monkeypox. Freaks me out. Freaks me out. You know this is like connected to to another story that I'm, I'm just trying to learn more about. Indiana, 36 states in total, has an outbreak of children with hepatitis. CDC is looking into it. It's connected to adenovirus. Is this somehow connected uh, to uh, COVID? There, there's no, there's no answer right now. They don't know why this is happening. 180 children, 36 states, have this hepatitis, and they're not sure why. Now that I'm paying attention to. Creepy and freaky. Frightening, really, if you're a parent. Keep it here. We've got more. I'm going to get to that follow-up, I promise. This is Tony Katz today. Sweden and Finland looking to join NATO, saying that they will do it. The Turks seem opposed to such a move. One wonders if this is to get a little favor, get uh, some opportunities. I don't know, maybe get uh, some love for having been dropped from some defense uh, contracts. Because when you buy Russian-made 
defense systems that are meant to take down the F-35 strike fighter, maybe people don't want to do business with you. Maybe Turkey shouldn't be a NATO member anymore. But that's not the conversation. The conversation is Finland and Sweden saying that Russia isn't the threat that they thought it once was. And what's happening in Ukraine and the Ukrainians' ability to fight back against Russia proves it. But when it comes to Ukraine, another $40 billion has just gone out the door. Are we actually getting into nation rebuilding? And we sh- and should we be? Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Representative Victoria Sparts joins us right now. She is from the Indiana 5th District. Full disclosure, she is my representative, my member uh, of Congress, of course, uh, uh, of uh, Ukraine, has been spending time in Ukraine, has been uh, very passionately uh, engaged in the support of Ukrainians against uh, the the Russian threat. And I do want to get into the dollars with you, but let's start with Sweden and, and Finland, their desire to join NATO. What does that say to you, and do you believe that this Turkish resistance can be overcome? Well, I think, you know, we created a nice situation, which really needs to be rethought. You know, if you're a member of NATO and one child in your country dies, you know, the whole force of West going to come to try to protect you. If you are not, you know, you'll be in a situation that your kids, women, children will be slaughtered and the world will be watching. So I think it's a very dangerous situation because now our United Nations is dysfunctional organization, so there is no protection. I think Sweden understands, you know, and that it's really in Finland they are in danger. Russia has a big appetite and can cause a lot of problems. So I think this is all or nothing approach is not a good approach, but I think there is a lot of politics is going to be happening, and I'm not sure if that's going to be the time and, you know, that things can happen to resolve world order and what happens next. But I don't blame them because this, the situation has been escalated because these presidents were dragging their feet and not really be decisive. If what he's talking right now would have been done a year ago, we wouldn't have had this war. Any delay in an action caused a lot of lives and a lot of money. So being reactive and proactive, that's unfortunate reality. And I think we, we took a Chamberlain approach, unfortunately. Now we're trying to catch up. But let's uh, go back to that. Uh, the, the idea that uh, when you're not a NATO ally, uh, women and children can get slaughtered is, is uh, in, incendiary language in that you're making an argument, I believe you're making the argument, Congresswoman, that that the United States should be doing more re- regarding uh, Ukraine. But there is something to be said for treaties versus, na- you know, nations we have treaties with versus nations we we don't have treaties uh, with. Is it your feel that with uh, the money that has been pledged and the hardware that has been uh, uh, sent, that has not been enough in Ukraine? Well, let me tell you something. You know, I'm not talking about the U.S. I'm talking about international order. It's not just responsibility of U.S. to keep peace. We are a big leader in that. But we need to have a mechanism that country cannot be attacked and people wouldn't be killed like that and no one can do anything about it. So I think it's a responsibility for us to look. United Nations were created for that reason and it's not working. So NATO is a different organization. But what I'm just saying, we do not have an entity like that. And I think that had to be discussed because there is no protection right now unless you're a member of NATO. That's why everyone wants to be a member of NATO. And it creates a lot of problems for us, too, and burdens. So I don't know if that's the best structure, but it's a different conversation. As related to, in general, when you're talking about the aid and help to Ukraine, 
Well, let me tell you a few things. You know, in our, I just actually called for oversight committee hearing, and I actually was uh, co-chairing that hearing. You know, Democrats and Republicans agree, ranking member and chairwoman, to do the hearing because I felt we need to figure out what's happened. So, you know, we talk about all these Ukrainian packages from $13.6 billion that we just passed, you know, a few months ago. I could only figure out about three going to Ukraine. So I was trying to figure out where the rest are, and I still need to see the numbers. A lot of goes to these international organizations. I haven't seen them on the ground in Ukraine or Poland or anywhere else. They have a big fancy offices, big bureaucracy, and do resolutions. I talked to them and said, no one cares about your resolutions. Pick some items, action items, and get it done. If you cannot get it done, then why do you exist? And I think that is the question we need to ask, because right now the world is getting destabilized. It's not just an issue of Ukraine. It is becoming the Middle East will be destabilized. Europe is getting destabilized. Georgia, Moldova, Poland, Baltics. Scandinavian countries. But let me push back on that. I mean, it's a problem. Let me push back on that for for a moment. Talking to Congresswoman Victoria Sparks of the Indiana 5th District, the idea that the world is being destabilized, if you and I were sitting over a drink and discussing this on a bar stool, I would turn to you and say, the world has been being destabilized since the beginning of time. There's always a moment when the world is destabilized. Is the argument that there are warring factions and tribal factions and, and horrors happening? happening every single day in places we don't pay any attention to or is it the idea that the 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 uh back and forth is not getting uh responses because we lack a leadership on a world stage and your feel is that the united nations can't do it so we need to start fresh well i think it cannot do it but i think it's always there's always conflict but the scale of the conflict right now is getting very, very material. You have a smaller conflict, but this is, you know, by World Food Program estimate, if we don't unblock ports in Odessa, which on top of all of the bad manufacturing energy policy, we already had inflation and prices. I mean, I'm a farmer, four to six times increase on input costs. We already had problems, but now block ports in Ukraine, and I mean, Russia and Ukraine pretty much control third of supply of wheat. It's going to destabilize billions of people. It's going to be North Africa, about 24 countries are going to have hunger and failed governments, terrorism and riots and wars. I mean, this is very serious. We're talking to large groups of people. And if you know famine and food, it's also a weapon of mass destruction. Russia understands it very well. You know, so I think blocking this port is a big problem right now to world food supply. You know, and David Bisley from Wood Full Program, he just recently, I just actually posted, you know, had a discussion on CNN. This is attack on the world, and people need to understand that. You know, so it might not affect come to you and me sitting maybe here quickly, but it will come to some of my constituents because not everyone can afford, you know, all of this fancy places and have, you know, have a lot of disposable income. Inflation is going to hurt people with low income. It's going to hurt people with low income in in my, in, in my district, in Indiana, it's going to hurt people in countries like Africa, in South America, and we have open border, and they will be coming on our side and try to get more benefits. In Sri Lanka, I mean, there are going to be a lot of implications of that, that if the world is not watching, it's going to be very, very material. So the crisis exists, but the materiality of crisis. It's very significant because it's hard to deal with material crises, and it's moving in that direction. And unfortunately, this administration just start realizing it now. 
And unfortunately, we're always slow. And slow response in an action creates higher costs. Talking about the new package, I think it's a little bit bad in that package, you know, because ultimately, if you talk about Ukraine, at least half of the money they tried to go to Ukraine in this case, you know, from $40 billion. The other ones is really not. But it's also we need to make sure we have a proper oversight of that, too. You know, so but let's, not like let's, a bureaucracy oversight, but real oversight on the ground. That's why I push on them and I said, if you want money to Ukraine, you better have your people there on the ground, military attaché. You need to have your consulate there that these people can watch the government, can watch and make sure things are delivered, and can monitor what's happening there. So you're making the argument, talking to Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, that it's one thing to give the money, but we as as Americans should be keeping an eye on how the money is spent. Just to make sure really quickly that you're saying that. Yes, I did it. It has okay. to. And you need to be on the ground. You cannot watch how money is spent sitting in offices in New York or Washington. You're not going to get me to disagree with that. But in this $40 billion, and I wanted to get to this, so I'm so glad yep. that you created the segue for me. I like it when you make my job easy, Congresswoman. Thank you for that. <laughs> this $40 billion, as described by Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, a regular guest on this yep. program, a, a military analyst on radio and television. He described that $40 billion as for nation building. So oh, no. how would no. you describe the $40 billion? And do you, with, with look, I, I, I never question uh, where, where, your, where your loyalty is. I'm not that person. That is not in any way my conversation. But certainly there is a, a connection that you have uh, to Ukraine that, that I don't. Are you in favor of nation building in Ukraine? No, there is no nation can be built, you know, from only from people ground up. And I think at some point, you know, West need to see, you know, not just us, how we can have policies that, you know, that very, you know, good for that our companies are interested in investing in Ukraine versus Chinese company. Ukraine is a country full of resources. You know, you cannot rebuild. I mean, the, the, the destruction there, we're talking trillions. Are not, I mean, this is just a joke. This thing is not even, I mean, if we don't give them proper military support, the scale of the crisis, it's not sustainable by us, by the world. You know, the only thing we should do, give them enough weapons to stop this insanity, stop the damage and drag Russia to the table. You know, that is the only way. You know, there is, I mean, there is no, I mean, the nations of that size is, you know, second largest country in Europe with 40 million people with resources and everything else. You know, I think this is, you know, this, it's not even, this is not even a peanut. I mean, it's a joke even to say that there's going to be built any nation. What I think it is, which is not sufficient, and we push a little bit more, that we do need to have more security assistance. For me, if you think about it, it's 40 billion. So at least a little bit more. Last time we only get two to really for security assistance for weapons. Now we're given six billion for that, you know. So we give some more money to, you know, to, uh, to support, you know, Ukrainian government. But that is something that I personally believe that is a little bit, you know, dangerous to do because without proper oversight. Because I understand we gave money to organizations like UN and they ate all of the money and nothing happened. So it's a bureaucracy. But if we're going to help them to, you know, to collapse the economy so they can pay pensions and stuff like that, in the meantime, we need to make sure that there is a mechanism that they're not going to money not going to go to wrong people. And then, you know, I think that is very important. So there is no talking a building. I think there is, you know, four billion goes six billion to goes to Ukrainian government, four billion goes to Ukrainian military, so it's ten billion goes in the military, you know, and then they have humanitarian aid, which is not just for Ukraine, and then they have just for Poland and everything else, and then they have some for supporting 
you know, this Ukrainian government for them, like for pensions and maintaining the economy, because right now ports are blocked. They have no income, no grain income. Economy doesn't have any, a lot of plants, you know, a lot of companies, you know, destroy. So they don't have any revenue. So they have a problem now to pay like the military people and pensions. So it's a very temporary fix. But it's almost impossible to sustain that. And I think that the world, the United States cannot afford it. That's why we have to stop the war with given proper weapons. And then Ukrainians need to create policy attractive for companies to invest because it's a very attractive country. Let and me... I would like American companies to invest before Chinese come and take resources. Ukraine has 22 rare earth minerals, some of the largest, you know, land uh, in, in Europe and most productive. So it's a very attractive company. You are it's preaching... On that one, and I have been concerned constantly that when you now have a, a vassal state like Russia will be and China control of it, exactly how dangerous it becomes for the rest of the world. But we're going to save that conversation for another day. Before I, I let you go, Congresswoman, I just want to uh, you, you sit on the uh, Judiciary uh, Committee there in, in the House, Crime, Terrorism and Homeland Security Subcommittee, the Immigration and Citizenship subcommittee you have the the secretary of homeland security uh, alejandro mayorkas saying may 23rd that's when title 42 will disappear um is there any way to get him not to do this is there any legislation being discussed regarding a a strengthening of the border and is our border prepared for what happens when Title 42, which allows for easy deportation due to communicable diseases a la COVID, um, uh, and that uh, ability to remove people from the country is gone, is the country prepared for what comes next? No, I think it is a disgrace for him to do it. I think we will have a real invasion in the country. And I think that is, it, 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 you know, I, I'll give you the number. World Food Program did an estimate that with this destabilization of the world, can destabilize Central America, where if you calculate about 40% of people want to leave the country, you know, about 90% want to come to our country. We're talking about 12, 13 million people. If we have no way to be able to stop anyone at that border, and you have millions of people coming to that border, you know, our border patrol has no ability to control that border and secure American people. And this is a dangerous situation considering there are wars happening, Terrorists happening, what's happening in Afghanistan, to let our border patrol to drop the ball on them like that. I mean, this is something that we need to have a serious conversation, but we also need to get pushed on the Democrats because they cannot abandon our country. This is a huge national security risk, and we need to continue raising this issue that American people understand that this is not politics. This is a danger to our national security. The same was happening in Ukraine, a danger to our national security. And we cannot be reluctant and dumb, don't believe that country and Russia and China are not attacking us. So we cannot be stupid. We have to be more proactive, not reactive, and be smarter because they're eating our lunch and it's enough. We should be better because we're a powerful country with a lot of good people, have too much dumb people running the country and really causing a lot of problems. So I think we have to get together and find some common ground, even get some Democrats on board. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time going over uh, how we, 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 we made a connection in, in those stories. We will speak again. Congresswoman Victoria Sparts, S-P-A-R-T-Z, sparts.house.gov is where you find her. I appreciate taking the time to be with us. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz.
So the DPA, the Defense Production Act, in order to get baby formula. I mean, Biden is is super proud of himself here. Oh, yeah, he's got it. I know parents all across the country are worried about finding enough infant formula to feed their babies. As a parent and as a grandparent, I know just how stressful that is. Is Hunter still taking baby formula? Okay, that's funny. I don't think you know how stressful it is. I don't think that you get to say that. As a matter of fact, it's incredibly disconnected. What I found interesting, because this was a pre-taped thing, like this was set up and he's reading properly off the teleprompter and everything else. He did this from the Oval. That's what I thought was interesting about this video where he's saying we're going to invoke the Defense Production Act to alleviate baby formula shortages. We're sending planes over to Europe to get more formula. The issue is the monopoly. The issue is the government regulation that keeps one or two people providing the vast majority of baby formula. More competition is the key. Facebook, ah, forget Facebook. Find me at TonyCats.com and Twitter at Tony Katz. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.